0: All right, good morning once again, and first we want to welcome our brother visiting from our sister church in Papua New Guinea, also known as Vivian's boyfriend. (laughs) I'm introducing Mel. Go ahead and stand up, brother, so we can... Welcome. Welcome. Good to have you here, and hopefully you're all alert and awake. Some of you may have stayed up just a little bit late to watch the World Cup <laughs> last night, and as we stayed up into the wee hours, like 1.30 a.m., you know, I thought, would it be all right to delay church a little bit? <laughs> and, I, and I thought about it, and I thought, well, probably not, but then what occurred to me is that Two of our brothers in our fellowship of churches are actually playing in the World Cup. we got Paul and Henry playing on the Samoan team. So I think there's biblical precedent, you know, like (laughs) Philippians 2 says, consider others better than yourselves. And so I think we should really consider them and really think about, you know, when there's late games, maybe just sliding it back a little bit (laughs) to honor that scripture. Just a thought. Just a thought. Just a thought. This... <laughs> maybe that'll catch on maybe it won't but um, anyway this is uh, our last Sunday Megan and I before we take a trip to the US and so next Sunday is a family service Scott will be preaching that'll be awesome and then in the following Sundays the young guns will be preaching the Word of God so we have Timothy preaching we have Chris Cress preaching we have Tyson preaching and I've listened to their lessons so there's there's nothing heretical in there it's it's all good stuff so I'm fired up that they they get to preach to you and you get to hear them and pray for us as we do our travels. We'll spend some time with Megan's family. We'll spend some time with my family. And then we'll have our meeting in San Diego, which is all of our churches from around the world. Gather every year to to kind of figure out the direction forward for our church So pray for that as we meet in san diego to figure out all of that stuff And so if you're here with us this morning studying the bible We are looking at genesis chapter 3 So if you could turn there if you have a bible if not it'll it'll be on the screen And last week we talked about genesis 2 we just follow it as it goes But genesis 1 and 2 are basically the before picture Everything is awesome Genesis 1, Genesis 2, this morning, Genesis chapter 3, is the after picture. So Genesis 1 and 2 is is the picture of things as they were meant to be. The original state, the Garden of Eden, paradise. After chapter 3, everything changes. We lose the plot, but God relentlessly pursues us and continues to help humanity get back on track. So it's important to know those first two chapters, because be, because of those, there's hope. And if we only read Genesis chapter 3 and understood that we fall and we, and we blow it, then there would be no hope. But praise God for the first part of the Bible. Let's pray and then let's read this chapter together this morning. God, we are grateful to serve you and worship you, and as we come before you, help, help your words to really stir our mind and stir our hearts to know you better, to know you deeper, and to live more like your Son. Not not just as an individual, but as a church. And not just for the sake of living like you, but present this message to a lost world who's desperate to hear something good, some good news, which we have. We pray all this in your Son Jesus' name. Amen. Starting in Genesis chapter 3, we're going to read verse 1 until the end of the chapter. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. And if you know Genesis 2, there's no real reference to not touching it. So as we see, there's a bit of a spiral already where she's adding to the command. As it continues, you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. They're already like God when they're created in their perfect state, but he's trying to convince them they'll be more like God. And this knowledge of good and evil is basically just a... A decision to take things into your own hands. You know what's best when you eat from that tree of knowledge of good and evil. It's kind of a moral autonomy. I know what's best for me, and therefore I will make the decision that's best for me. And as it continues, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Adam and Eve were the first not to read the terms and conditions from Apple. (laughs) Uh, 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 Chew on that one. uh, Chew on that one. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees in the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? And this may not sound like much, but if you're familiar with religion generally, there is a stream of religion that kind of... Talks about total depravity, and there's this idea that man cannot hear or respond to God. It's a Calvinistic approach, and so God has to regenerate you without even you doing anything. And maybe you're not familiar with that, but that's a, a stream of religion. And so, here in this passage, though, we see even after they've fallen and eaten the apple, they still hear God and can respond to Him. So when when people say, oh, we're totally depraved, we have no ability to respond to God, it's always helpful to say, well, well, what happened in the garden? They ate, they fell, but they still heard God, and they still had the ability to respond. Anyway, just a little bit of equipping for you. As we continue, the man answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. They were naked before... And now they really realize it. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent to see me and I ate. It almost sounds comical. You can see the spiral of blame. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. Now that doesn't mean necessarily the serpent had legs prior to this and all of a sudden he loses them because we know that snakes don't eat dust as well. So it's more about being humiliated. And I put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel to the woman he said i will make your pains and childbearing very severe with painful labor you will give birth to children your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you to adam he said because you have listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which i commanded you you must not eat from it cursed is the ground because of you through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life it will never stop unceasing sweat and toil They take, they eat, mankind falls. Chapter 3 is basically summarized like that. They have all of these options. And they choose the wrong one. The scene opens with man in the garden in chapter 3. And it ends with him getting kicked out of the garden. It's a before and after picture. And from this passage, let's talk about three things that apply to our lives this morning. Choices, consequences, and the cross. In this passage, you know what? There are so many good choices. So many. And they make the wrong choice. Earlier in chapter 2, God says, you can eat from any, any tree. You can eat from any of them. Pick anyone you want. There are so many. Eat from any of them, but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. There's a variety of options out there, guys. Look at them enjoy them. So many good choices. But there's just one wrong one you can't eat from. And that's the one they choose. And what what influenced that? I think if you look at the difference between God and the serpent, and the Hebrews wouldn't have read the serpent as Satan, although as we read through the Bible, it does evolve and it is a picture of Satan. But they wouldn't have thought that immediately. It would have been interesting to hear about a talking snake. But Satan is not the first thing that comes into their mind. But there is a difference in their approach when you see God and the serpent. God says, you're free to eat from any tree. That's what he tells them. You can eat from any of them. There's lots of options. You can have all of these possibilities. And look what the serpent says as the account starts. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree? He's placing prohibition. I mean, he's kind of reducing it. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree? He avoids saying, man, God has been super generous. He gave you lots of options. He only, he only said, don't eat from one. But he said, did, did he really say not eat from any tree? He really spotlights this idea of you must not. Instead of saying, look at all the possibilities he gave you. And I think there, there is an influence from Satan that warps our mind to think that God reduces us to just, oh, I, can, I can't do this. But look at all the possibilities he does give us. There's a desire too that word is used. In this passage where the woman sees that the food, the food is good to eat, desirable. So there's this desire that arises. James, we'll talk about that later in his epistles. That you, you covet and, and desire starts to roll and gives birth to sin and then sin gives birth to death. But in their original design, they didn't need anything. But all of a sudden, the serpent says, look at this tree. And let me show you how good it is. And desire is born in Eve. And she sees something she thinks she needs, but really doesn't. And that's often a big factor in how we make choices. We see something we think we need and we must have, but we don't need it. That's the problem with desire. What influenced their decision? There was no discussion. I mean, they were right there with each other. Hey, is this a good idea? I don't think so. He just earlier said we shouldn't eat from that. Okay, well, let's put it away. But instead, it's just eat, grab, give. No real discussion. We get into problems when we make choices and when we don't have discussion either. And so when we allow Satan to warp our view and we have the desires that are born and we don't have proper discussion with people about our choices, we leave a lot of room for making bad ones. But there are so many good ones. And despite this low point, God will continue to offer them good options over and over throughout the Bible. But what's cool about the end of this story is it's probably verse 24, 25 or toward the end of it. You see this, the cherubim, right? If you look at the end, at the end of chapter three, he drives out the man and then he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden, cherubim with a flaming sword. Flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. So Adam and Eve mess up, they get kicked out of the garden, and then these two cherubim, which are angelic figures, they have these like lightsabers, you know, they're rotating around to guard the tree of life, they're protecting them to come in. And so that's kind of how the story ends with these sweet cherubim. Well, not really sweet in the sense they're guarding, you know, but if you kind of look at it, it's like this this imagery of these angels with flashing swords. And so what's interesting is to figure out where else do they pop up in the Bible? And what is their role? What are they doing? That's an interesting study. And so here's the next time they pop up in the Bible. So there's one. That's a real photo, by the way, in the garden, Genesis chapter 3, the flaming sword and the cherubim. So they get kicked out. Angels are standing guard. In Exodus 25, though, verses 18 through 20, the cherubim are to have their wings spread upward, overshadowing the cover with them. The cherubim are to face each other. What's that referring to? The ark of the covenant. What's in the ark? The law, the way to life. And so here in Genesis 3, they're guarding the way to the the tree of life, and, and they can't, they're preventing. Adam and Eve from coming in there. In Exodus twenty-five, it's like it's almost an invitation. That they're opened up and saying, "Look, this is the way to life. This is the law." It's the same thing in Numbers chapter 7 when Moses entered to the tent of meeting to speak with the Lord. He heard the voice speaking to him from behind the two cherubim above the atonement cover on the ark of the covenant law. In this way, the Lord spoke to them. And this is really wild because the first time these angels appear, they're preventing Adam and Eve from the way to life. The next time they appear, they're kind of opening the way back to life by the law. And so God is still giving them many choices to live properly. God says, you lost your first chance, but now if you choose, I'll give you a new chance to life. And here's those same two angels guarding the law, the way to life. And this would have struck deep into the mind of Hebrews. They saw this imagery and saw, wow, this is the new way to life. We better choose to love the law. We messed up in the beginning, but he's given us another chance. Choices are a part of our everyday life, right? And researchers at Cornell University, they estimate we make about two hundred and twenty decisions just about food on a daily basis. Now how they arrive first, I don't know how they arrive at these type of figures anyway. Do they sit down and monitor somebody? Are you thinking about food? Are you thinking about food? Are you thinking about food now? I don't know how it all works, but if you think about it, you wake up, should I eat an apple, should I eat a donut? Oh, I think I have a donut. <laughs> I don't know how it all works. But and, and as, as your responsibility increases, so do your amount of choices, right? And then, again, I don't know how they arrive at these, but there are studies that kind of sit down and figure this kind of stuff out. But in the end, they say you make about 35,000 choices daily. That's flat out crazy. A lot of it might be subconscious. But, and that, that boils down to one decision every two seconds. Should I listen to this next point? Should I not? <laughs> I should listen and each decision carries consequences some are trivial some are significant some are good some are bad but choices are a part of our everyday life they were part of the garden and god gave so many good ones and only one wrong one and we messed it up i mean that's that's me that's you that's us. We have all this and we focus on the thing that we can't do. And I think often in, in, our, in our application of this, we think, Oh, I, I, I think I, I just... What's the bad choice? I can't do the bad choice. You focus on the bad thing that you can't do. Instead of all the good things you can do. A more productive mindset is to say, Man, look at all the trees God has given. And he's so gracious. Instead of focusing on the bad thing, because that's what Satan does. He fine-tunes your mind to find the one bad thing, the one wrong thing, the one criticism, and he spotlights it. And God says, man, you're twisting. My goodness. Look at how much flexibility we have. And and, and I know this because, you know, as, as we grow up, we often think, especially in our youth, we think, ah, church isn't really for me. It's a bunch of rules and regulations. It's all focused on the bad. That's what Satan does. Oh, you go to church. Oh, you can't have sex. You can't have fun. You can't associate with this kind of people. And and just look what you can't do. Instead of look at all the things you can do with God's graciousness. And And I really believe this is a call to anybody not really following the Bible. Hopefully all of us in this building have an interest in the Bible are following the Bible, or at least want to follow the Bible. But when God kicks them out of the garden and then these two cherubim show up again, they're kind of pointing to say, look, you messed up, but this is the way to life. The Bible, God's word. Choose this. There's so many decisions you can make, but this one is the right one. If you choose to live by the standard of the word of God, that's a good choice. I mean, it's not surprising that a lot of the truths that people talk about today are actually rooted in the Bible. they they kind of promote them like here's some cool insight and you know the golden rule I live by the golden rule where does that come from that comes from the bible take care of the poor I'm such a where does that come from that's Jesus I've read lots of these leadership books like take ownership that's flat out Jesus be a servant that's Jesus be humble as every core truth is in the bible if you choose to follow the bible it's a life giving choice secondly Let's talk about consequences. Because of this choice in Genesis 3, we see them spread and they're long-lasting. There's a range of them. In verse 8, what are they doing? They're hiding. Initially, they're walking with God, spending time with God. And now as a result of their choice, their relationship with God has been fractured. Verse 12 and 13, there's fractured relationships with one another. What are you doing? She told me to do it. What did you do? He told me to do it. There's there's this blaming going on. The relationships have been fractured. And the result and the consequence is there's curses. It's interesting. The serpent gets cursed. The ground gets cursed. But man and woman don't get cursed. If you read the text carefully. And man and woman, their roles are disrupted. You're, Eve, you're supposed to be, you know, uh, the, the mother of all children, but it's gonna be painful now. Your role's gonna be disrupted. Adam, you're supposed to work the ground and take care of it, you're still gonna do that, but it's gonna you're gonna sweat. And you're flat not gonna like it all the days of your life. And and so we see that then there's these thorns and thistles, and that's kind of the image of the fallen world, isn't it? Like you you made the wrong choice, and now there's consequences. And now there's consequences. And then in chapter 2, it's interesting because God says, okay, all these trees you have, don't eat from that one or you'll certainly die. Satan comes along, the serpent comes along, chapter 3, and says, "Will you certainly die. And then we see them eat the apple and they certainly don't die right here. And so you think, oh, which one's lying, God or the serpent? Who's telling the truth? What's going on here? Was the serpent right? Was God right? Was God telling a half-truth? If you study the text carefully, that idea you will certainly die shows up often in Hebrew throughout the Old Testament. It means you have a death sentence hanging over your head. I forget when the death penalty was uh, taken off the table here in New Zealand, maybe the 50s or the 70s, it still exists in America. If you get sentenced to death, you don't die right then, but you will certainly die. And that's here, in this passage. You mess around, you have a death sentence hanging over your head. Before that, I mean, there was no consequence. They they would have just loved life. That's eventually what Paul says in Romans chapter 5. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, here's the consequence. Death came through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. Everyone has a death sentence hanging over their head. I mean, you won't certainly die the first time you sin. But the first time you sin, a death sentence is issued to you, to all humanity. That's a serious consequence. That's very serious. Some choices that we make have immediate, visible consequences. Some, we don't see for a long, long time. I think it's evident in the way we're stewards or not stewards of the planet. If you chuck one piece of plastic into the ocean, you're probably not going to see all the ocean life rise to the surface and die. It's not realistic. There's no immediate effect. It may appear to have no consequence, but one piece of plastic in the ocean can last for hundreds of years. And eventually ocean life can choke on it. And then when you have a habit... Oh, there was no real consequence... I'll chuck another one in... And I'll chuck another one in, And I'll tell somebody else... And then when it becomes habitual... And, and it increases... You know, the rubbish piles up... The landfill increases... The greenhouse gals... I mean, it's like this... Consequential cycle... But you don't really see it... Immediately... It takes... Quite a long time... Same thing when you burn one lump of coal... If you burn a lump of coal... It's not like... Okay, we've just increased the... Temperature of the planet... There's not an immediate consequence. But you continue to do that. You think there's no immediate consequences. You know, it gets trapped in the air. All this kind of stuff. This isn't a platform about recycling. (laughs) That's a good thing to do, by the way. But it definitely illustrates people are concerned about this because there are consequences. They're very visible. And they say, look, man, it's been piling up. How much more so? The soul. When you think, oh, the choice I make today, I didn't certainly die. Maybe it's all good. No, there's there's definitely consequences when you keep doing that. When you combine all these factors and you can read all the articles about this, but when you combine the dominoes and you don't recycle and you burn all these fuels and all this stuff and people are making big deals about that. Hey, look, the same thing happens with your soul. And God say I'm giving you plenty of good options. But there are consequences for making the wrong one in the same way one lie doesn't seem that big it comes out of your mouth to your friend to your spouse that was easy no real repercussions no damage all is good until it becomes habit one instance of losing your temper no real consequences you don't really see anything one glance on the internet Nobody saw. There's no flaming cherubim swords in front of me. Everything must be okay. But these things have consequences. And God gives us strict advice about these consequences. This passage in Haggai and in Proverbs both say the same thing. Haggai chapter 1, 5, the whole context, they come back to rebuild the temple, they're building their houses instead. God says, What are you doing? You should be building my temple, not focusing on yourself. Haggai chapter 1 5, the prophet Haggai says, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Because there's a lot of good options, but when you make a bad one, there are consequences. Proverbs, kind of over and over, says this, chapter 4, verse 26. Give careful thought to the paths of your feet. Before you make a choice, think about it. You can make a lot of good ones make one wrong one, and it has a lot of consequences. I mean, it has you know, in parenting you can choose to let the early battles slide with your kids ah, just let them have it I'm tired of just give it to them, you know what I mean? (laughs) and then when they become teenagers you think ah, I wish I would have won the early battles if we choose to prevent suffering And some of our kids, oh, just, just, they don't have to go through it, just take them out, don't make them, but if if we don't allow them to suffer in some areas, it won't produce character. It won't be immediately visible, but it will. In our marriages, if we let conflict go unresolved, if we kind of let it brew and stir, it'll create division at some point. If we choose to stay disconnected with our spouse, at some point, you'll look for connection elsewhere. And teenagers, when you lie to your parents, You're one step closer to leading a double life. You're one person in your bedroom, one person in the lounge, and then a triple life occurs when you live another life at your school. With the beginning of one lie. The campus and professionals, when you choose to pursue men or women that aren't godly, you're on the path to compromising. When you're stingy with God, when you have a little bit, you'll be stingy with God when you have a lot. These little choices have consequences when a church loses focus on the mission it quickly becomes religious there's there's consequences for all this stuff and we we just got to really understand that being impulsive is bad consider your ways compliance let me just do what you say so i won't have any conversation to have further that's bad there'll be consequences for that When you just avoid the choices, there'll be consequences. For that, God urges us to give careful thought to our ways. As we go to point three, there's good news. Even when you and I and us make bad choices that result in bad consequences, our path can still change. And that's what the remainder of this chapter tells us in Genesis chapter three. It does allude to the cross. Just as our choices have effects, the effect of the cross has power to redirect The trajectory of your life. Verse 15. The curse to the serpent. Crushing the head of the serpent. When you read through Old Testament Jewish interpretations. The serpent eventually becomes a symbol of Satan. And the Messiah, Jesus, the King, is the one crushing him. There's this enmity between the offspring of Eve and Satan. But eventually Satan will be crushed by the Messiah Romans chapter 16, verse 20 alludes to that. Here's what it says. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Think about that. The God of peace will crush. Peace and crush. You got to have a little bit of war from God to have a little bit of peace. But that's what's going on here. Verse 21. I'm going to kick you out of the garden. But before I do, I'm going to give you some clothes gracious I'll make some I'll make there's grace that precedes judgment and people are all about all oh, God's judging 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 God gives plenty of grace before he judges in this chapter humanity's banished from experiencing the tree of life on the cross Jesus hangs on a tree to bring us eternal life There's all this imagery in Genesis chapter 3. The reminder of the toil is what? Thorns and thistles. Thorns and thistles will be produced. You'll experience pain your entire life. You'll sweat and you'll see thorns and every time you see them, it'll be a reminder of we blew it, we messed up. On the cross, what crowns Jesus' head? A crown of thorns. This isn't just arbitrary. This is a powerful statement. This is a powerful symbol. This, this is what would have been seen as the curse placed on the head of Jesus. And Him making a public spectacle. Saying, I know you associate thorns and thistles with the curse. With the fall. But I'm placing it. I'm taking it. Putting it on my head. I'm reversing the curse. I'm reversing the fall. I will triumph. I will crush Satan under my foot. I will change your trajectory. And I'll make a powerful statement. And now it's all been reversed. And it starts with the cross. As Nigel mentioned, that's the beginning. When Jesus comes back, that's the end. In between, we are are learning that, man, Jesus has reversed all of this. That was placed in Genesis chapter 3. Romans 5.18, Paul says that too. Just as one trespass resulted in condemnation, Adam Everybody sinned for all people. So also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. Adam sins, everybody gets blamed and is a part of it. Jesus dies, and everybody gets a chance to have their trajectory changed as well. The cross is the solution to all of our bad choices and all of our bad consequences. That's what everybody wants. When people are on their deathbed, they they start confessing their regrets. I wish I could have done this. I wish I could go back and do this differently. And we see this theme in a lot of iconic movies. Back to the future. What are they trying to do? Go back and change things to alter the future. Let me go back in the past. Oh, don't do that. Don't fall in love with your mom <laughs> like <laughs> strange alright but the, the idea and you see this show up in a lot of movies where oh these people can travel back into the time The show travelers on Netflix let me, let me travel from the future back to the present and then alter the past and so I can affect the future the, the longing for humanity is we need to change something yeah. because we messed up that's what the cross does you know, there's been so many moments in my life. I wish I could rewind the clock and say, "I wish I would have done that differently." And ah, I shouldn't have done that. And I may not see the consequence, but then some some of the consequences may stay with us for a long time. Yeah. But to be honest, I'm in awe of how the trajectory of my life has changed since I became a disciple of Jesus. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. I was an irresponsible, apathetic white man. With many other things included in that. But very irresponsible, very apathetic. You know what? I think about my family, my wife, and my kids, and God graciously, get, I'm going from being irresponsible and apathetic to God says, hey, I'll, I'll let you be responsible. Here's my daughter. Here's some kids. I want you to have a family. That humbles me. I know who I am, you know who you are. But Jesus has changed the trajectory. I think about my irresponsibility and my apathy toward the human race at certain times of my life and God says, I'd like you to shepherd a church. Uh, that humbles me. Because there are times I didn't care about people. And now that's my job. To care about people. And God has changed the trajectory of my life. So with the cross, there is hope. As a parent, you probably have... Have made mistakes. For sure, for certain, you have made mistakes. But you can still turn the tide with the power of the cross. you certainly made mistakes in your marriage, but you can still reconnect from the power of the cross. Teenagers, you can still change course of your life. You can still become one person instead of multiple different people by the power of the cross. Our young men and our young women. You can become men and women of conviction. Even when you've made mistakes by the power of the cross. To the church, whenever we lose focus. Whenever we make mistakes. We can still change course by the power of the cross. We all have this choice, right? We all have a choice. We have many, many good choices. And there's a few bad ones. We all gravitate toward the bad ones. And when we do, there's a consequence. But all those consequences can be reversed by the power of the cross. As we conclude this morning, I don't know what number choice you're on today. 30 of 35,000, one of 35,000, doesn't matter. The most important choice you can make this morning is to to decide I'm going to live by God's word, not by the culture, not by what I think is right. I'm going to talk to people. I'm going to get some input. I'm not going to let my desires and emotions control me. I'm going to choose to live by God's word. Let's all give careful thought to our ways. Before you make a decision, consider the outcome. Consider the consequence. Let's all live a life of hope that our paths have changed course and will continue to change course. And let's speak this message because the world needs to hear this. They desperately want to change course. They definitely have made bad choices and have had consequences. And guilt and shame hangs over their heads. Let's offer them the message of the cross that reverses the thorns and the thistles. Amen. Amen.